While the children are heading out, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hosea this morning. Yes, Hosea. You go, where is Hosea? Well, if you picked up, if you got one of those Bibles we handed out this morning, it's on page 637. Um, If not, go back to the heart of your Old Testament, kind of in the middle of your Bible, you'll find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Hosea is right after Daniel. So you want to stay between Daniel and New Testament. Hosea is actually the first book of the minor prophets. Um, They're called the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, but because they're smaller books by and large although Hosea is actually uh, as long as Daniel is. Um, So with that, we'll come to Hosea this morning. Marriage can be the best of times in life, and marriage can be some of the worst of times in life, as our own lives, as well as our culture, has proved and is proven. How many of us have experienced the wonderful blessings of marriage, the love, the companionship, the blessing of shared lives, of children, of the intimacy, yes, the passion. These are amazing gifts from God. Marriage as God intended it to be is a very beautiful thing. Yet many of our lives have been touched, perhaps even wrecked on the rocks of a deeply troubled and even broken marriage. With mothers and fathers divorced, relationships destroyed, children swept up in the battles between former partners, it can all get very ugly. And we haven't even touched on the issues of domestic abuse in families, and so it goes. Most of us, if not all of us, have been touched by divorce, by unfaithfulness in marriage. The pain is real. We, we all have relatives, friends, people we know, people that are close to us that have dealt with the pain. Sin begets sin, and sin unleashed and untamed leads to a downward spiral, and you see people do things you couldn't imagine they could ever do. Well, this kind of personal pain is felt deeply by everybody in a family, even extended family, friends, and sadly, God's people are not immune from the sin and the pain. With that, we turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea introduces us to a family that is a miniature of our world. He introduces us to a problem family. Today, we would call it a dysfunctional family. Quite frankly, it's a mess. In the picture that is the family, God compares himself in Hosea not to an overbearing dictator who nobody dares to question, nor does he compare himself or liken himself to a husband and a father who leads an adoring wife and adoring children. But rather, God portrays himself as a husband whose wife has betrayed him, and a father whose children are strangers in his own house. And both his wife and children are simultaneously indulging and destroying themselves. In our rather simplistic and almost childish view of God, we might think, well, how is it that this all-powerful sovereign God could be in such a fix? A betrayed husband, that ignored father? Why doesn't he just wave his magic wand and fix the problems he's got? It seems all too easy a solution. 
But this problem has no easy fix, no, no painless remedy. Five points in my message today. Point number one, Hosea and Gomer picture God and his people. Chapter one of Hosea verses one to nine. Point number two, family reunion in blessing and restoration. Chapter one, verse 10 to chapter two, verse one. Point number three, the image of Israel as an unfaithful wife. Chapter two, verse two to verse 13. Point number four, the Lord's mercy on Israel, chapter 214 to chapter 223. And point number five, pursuing love comes at a cost. Chapter three, verses one to five. Let's let God tell the story. Follow along with me as I read Hosea chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. It's the middle of the 8th century B.C. Israel as a whole is materially prosperous, but they're spiritually destitute. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. Most literally it is, Go, marry a whore, and get children with a whore, for the country itself has become nothing but a whore. There, I said the word, whore. In church, I said it. <laughs> to be honest, I was a little afraid to say it. I thought, what other nicer words can I come up with? But what word does God's word use? It's an ugly word. It's supposed to hit you in the chest. You're supposed to feel it. Hear the command God delivers to Hosea is to marry a woman who would be, or already is, it's not entirely clear from the text, a prostitute. And not only be a husband to her, but also be a father to her children. Even those born out of her adultery, born out of her prostitution. Verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea took. Gomer. That is, Hosea married Gomer. Hosea entered into the most intimate relationship of life with a woman who either was a prostitute or would soon be one. And while the detailed timeline of her marriage and entry into the prostitute's life are not revealed, God's direct command to Hosea is go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. That is clear. It all begs the question, why? Why, oh why, does God tell Hosea to do this? What possibly can be the reason God's prophet is called to such a woman, to, to such a life? Well, did you catch it there at the end of verse 2? God tells us why it is. It is because the land commits great whoredom 
by forsaking the Lord. It is because the nation that inhabits the land of Israel, it is because the people God called to Himself out of Egypt and to whom He gave the promised land, these people are spiritual prostitutes before Him. They have forsaken their God who showered blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace upon them. The God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Who delivered them. Who redeemed them. They have now left that God behind for other lovers. They have been unfaithful to God. They have forsaken Him. They have abandoned Him. You see this in the story of the marriage relationship of Hosea and Gomer. But it is a story about God and Israel. There is an analogy going on here. Hosea is God. Gomer is Israel. Why choose this picture? Why choose this kind of relationship before our eyes? It's to help us understand who God is. How great His love is for His people. And to help us understand who we are and our true position before Him. It is because marriage is so intimate. How does Jesus describe the marriage relationship in Matthew 19? He's actually quoting Genesis 2. He says, The two shall become one flesh. God joins two separate people into one flesh flesh. They are to be one spiritually, emotionally, and yes, physically. Marriage is designed by God to be an intensely intimate relationship at every level. And that makes it a great illustration for God to describe for us the relationship He has with His people. He is a personal God who has an intensely personal and intimate relationship with those who are His own. Our relationship with the Lord as His people is that deep. It is that strong. It is that personal. It is face to face. And that's really not even strong enough. Our relationship with God is more intense, more personal, more intimate than any human relationship can be. We just read Psalm 139, didn't we? Do you want to put your thoughts on display in front of everybody else in this room? Not me. Not me. Let alone my wife, my family, my kids. Think if your thoughts were projected on a screen right next to your brain, you know, right over here. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. God knows us that well. He knows it. And He still loves us. Have you ever thought about your relationship with God in that way? That deeply? That personally? Well, that is why sin is such an affront to the Lord. That is why it grieves our pure and perfect and holy God so deeply when we reject Him to follow our own way. That is why when we embrace sin, we commit spiritual adultery against God. 
The New Testament uses this same kind of language to speak of our sin against God in light of our relationship with Him. In response to fights and quarrels motivated by our selfish passions and desires, James in James chapter 4 declares us to be adulterous people. Later in that same verse, James says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, James says that when we love the things of the world, when we love power, position, respect, affection, the approval of others, more than we love God, it is spiritual adultery. And when we do so, he tells us in James 4, he is jealous for us. He desires our affections. And he pursues us even in our sin. Before we move on, I want to make one more point. Prostitution can be viewed from many different lenses. One reality is that of a young woman or even just a girl who has been sucked into adultery or even forced into it through human trafficking. They can only leave that kind of life at the threat of losing their own life. Another reality is one of human necessity. Some women resort to it as a way to have food, shelter, clothing when they believe they have no other option. Those two kinds of prostitution are heartbreaking. They're sad. These are not the kind of prostitution and adultery we have here with Gomer. Neither is this a situation where God is found for Hosea a prostitute with a heart of gold, so to speak, like you see in the movies once in a while. No, Hosea is called to marry a morally shallow and unscrupulous woman, a woman who walks away from Hosea the moment it suited her, motivated only by self-serving and self-centered interest. You see, the picture God is painting isn't yet complete when we find out that Gomer's been called to marry a whore. We need, to read them, we need to meet the rest of Hosea's family to see the fruit of spiritual adultery. In verses 4 to 9, God tells us, or rather tells Hosea, what to name the children of Gomer. And these names are loaded with meaning, for they describe the result, yes, even the fruit of the rejection of God by Israel. The names of these children personify the judgment of God on Israel for their adultery against him. Let's look at verse 4. Read along with me. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel is a place of judgment. It's a place of judgment. And God is going to judge Israel. Shortly after Hosea writes this prophecy, writes this book, Israel, the northern ten tribes of the nation of Israel, is destroyed, is invaded by the Assyrians, the superpower of the day, and scattered across the world. So, the first child, The first child's name is really synonymous with judgment. The next two children are not even declared to be Hosea's. It might be that they are the consequence of 
Gomer's life of prostitution. Verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Notice it doesn't say she conceived a son for Hosea. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. Not by military might, I will not save them. When he, she, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Literally, is I will not be I am to you. This is God saying, that Hosea's children, the children of Israel, are deserving of punishment. God will have no mercy on them, and they are not my people. They are not my people. Similar to what Hosea might say, these are not, two of them at least, are not my real children. Really, without God, by the time we get to the end of verse 9, without God, Israel is without hope. Is he not their God? Because if he is not their God, who is? You see, sin has separated them from God. Remember verse 2? For the land permits great commits great whoredom, great adultery by forsaking God. By their actions, they have deserted God. They have renounced Him. They have abandoned Him. Oh, they've still got religion. They've got altars. They've got sacrifices. They've got priests. They've got a temple in Jerusalem. But it's all an empty sham. They are adulterers, loving themselves and the world. It is an empty and false worship of God. Turn over to chapter 4 of Hosea with me. Chapter 4 to verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staffs give them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. Because their shade is good, therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Oh, we have more sophisticated idols today, don't we? Or at least we think we do. But they are idols nonetheless. And God is mocked by our idols. Do you think of sin as that personal? As so directly involving God that it is contempt of God? Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Just as sin had separated Adam and Eve from God, when they, when Israel violated His command, they are separated from God. 
The law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the command to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and to love the neighbors as themselves, had been broken over and over and over again. And a holy and just God must judge sin. The question of why God told Hosea to do this is really answered by the entire Old Testament. From the, fall of man, from the fall of Adam on to make real for God's people the intimate and personal nature of our sin, of their sin, against God. The latter chapters of Hosea, it actually gets worse. It tells us of sin in Israel that was pervasive. The rulers of Israel are corrupt, not righteous, but they were rebellious. They turned to the superpowers of the day, Assyria and Egypt, to protect them, not to their God. Personal sin abounded, drunkenness, cursing, lying, deceit, promises were broken. Theft and robbery ran rampant in the streets, in businesses. Corruption was everywhere. They murdered and multiplied violence, and yes, our focus here, marriage is trampled underfoot. Adultery and prostitution marked their lives. God's people descended to this. God's blessing upon them was squandered. His grace denigrated and looked down upon. They who had been God's special people are declared by God to be not my people. Well, that's pretty dark, isn't it? Their only hope in the midst of their descent into sin, into spiritual prostitution, Is God. So God, starting in verse 10, expresses his love for his people. Despite the fact they deserve the full measure of his wrath, he shows mercy, compassion, and love. Point number two family reunion in blessing and restoration. Verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel." Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. This is reconciliation. The children are to call back together. God will have compassion on them. There is hope of being loved again by God. In the midst of the gloom and the doom and the judgment... Hope is kept alive in these three verses. And God is calling on two great promises, two great covenants of the Old Testament. Did you catch it? His covenant with Abraham and his covenant with David. Let's look at that. First in verse 10. The Lord recalls the words of his promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham his descendants would be like the sand of the sea and that through his descendants all the families of the earth would be blessed. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. That's why he says in verse 10, 
the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. He's referring back to the promise to Abraham. That promise is still in effect. God's promise to redeem Israel. To bless all nations through Israel. That promise that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ is here in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. The second is in verse 11. In verse 11, he indicates all Israel will be united under one leader again. Under one head, it says. Turn over two chapters to chapter 3. Turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 5. That's going to be the end of our section today. Chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return, they're being gathered again, and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Okay, by the time Hosea writes this, David has been dead about 250 years. What's he talking about? He's talking about the son of David. Who's the son of David? Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of David, who will fulfill the promise given to David that a descendant of his will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Hosea is pointing to the promises of God, the promises he gave to Abraham, the promises he gave to David, and the promises that are fulfilled by Jesus Christ who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and will return again to establish his kingdom. In the midst of all this sin, Hosea is pointing us to Christ. Well, chapter 1 uses the picture of Hosea and Gomer's unlikely marriage to point to God to show his love through the son of David. Now we come to chapter 2, verse 2. And for a second time, the acts of the unfaithful wife are detailed here. Point number 3, the image of Israel as an unfaithful wife. Verse 2. Plead with your mother... Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Hosea is imploring for the children of Israel to plead with the nation, with the individuals of Israel to plead with the nation, to repent, to turn. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than before. God is pouring his judgment out upon his sinful people. And it's harsh. And it's strong. That last sentence there, of verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me now, or then than now. Who does that sound like? Sounds a little like the prodigal son, doesn't it? The prodigal son who could see that he was eating pig food. Luke chapter 15. He said, even my slaves in my father's house eat better than I do. In reality, this is a call to repentance. What did verse say? Verse 2 say, plead with your mother. Plead with her. Return to the Lord. Forsake your sin. God is begging. Verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal, a false god. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. God's judgment here is unsparing. But it is not unjust. It is not unjust. Justice, as a matter of fact, justice demands that God deal with sinful people. For He is a holy God. For us to have a relationship with Him, somehow, our sin must be dealt with. We cannot take care of it ourselves. We cannot work for it ourselves. We cannot earn God's favor. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before Him. That brings us to point four. The Lord's mercy on Israel. Verse 14, chapter 2. Notice God has taken the initiative in judging in the first part of the book of Hosea. Now He is going to take the initiative in saving, in grace. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's going to pursue these unfaithful sinners. 
Behold, therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Did you catch it? Who's going to do this? God will. God will. God will. God will. What does Israel do here? Nothing. Nothing. God is the initiator of the mercy, of the love, of the compassion upon Israel. He calls her. He calls her to himself. Matter of track, betrothal at the end. We hear betrothal three times. I will, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. In betrothal. Betrothal is more than an engagement. Okay. In betrothal in the Old Testament, the husband had to pay for his wife had to make a payment for his wife. And notice what God pays. Five things God pays in these betrothal statements. Five different things. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth to you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy, and in faithfulness. Well, who can do that? Only God, right? Only God. God is betrothing His people. He is paying for His people. Verse 21, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. We've gone full circle, haven't we? God is going to call this people his people. He will redeem them. He will save them. There is hope here in the midst of doom. God will have mercy on them, on his people. Point number five, pursuing love comes at a cost. Well, I talked about cost a little bit. We're going to see it again here in chapter three. Chapter three, verse one, and the Lord said to me, 
said to Hosea, Go again. Oh. Gomer's been involved in this life of harlotry, in this, this life of whoredom, and God calls him to go again? Because she's still actively engaged in it. You pick that up as in the following sentence. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Hosea is to follow God's example. He is to be a picture of God's love in his love for Gomer. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lechish of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Hosea buys Gomer out of slavery. He buys her at a slave auction. He pays the price for slaves. Despite the fact she is still loved by another man or other men and is still a prostitute. He pursues her. He goes and gets her. He pays for her. He redeems her. That's what the word redeem means, to buy out of. He redeems her just as the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross to redeem us from slavery to sin and bring us to be slaves of righteousness, to be His children. Verse 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hosea's love for Gomer is nothing but following in the footstep of God's love for his people. This love is not based on what they deserved. They deserve judgment. But on God's own purpose, motivated by his love. Hosea is a model for us to think about. It is a life lived as instruction for others, as instruction for us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, not a follower of Christ, do you understand how personally your sin is taken by God? If you think you're a pretty nice, normal, religiously kind of neutral person, that's an illusion. Jesus tells us to come to Him. And Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, what have you learned, believer? What have you learned from the life of Hosea? From Hosea's love of Gomer? 
of God's love for Israel, of God's love for his people. Who did you identify with in this story? This hit me pretty hard. Who did you identify? Did you identify with Hosea? Did you feel like, yeah, I'm kind of like Hosea, right? Were you feeling the pain of taking an adulterous wife, of having children that don't love you, of a broken family? Were you thinking perhaps how unfair it is of God to do this to Hosea? I did at first. Well, if you do identify with Hosea, I hope it's only a little bit. Because in this story, we are Gomer. We are Gomer. We are the ones who commit spiritual adultery, according to James 4, verse 4. I am Gomer. You are Gomer. 1 John 4 says that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. We did not love Him first. He pursued us. Romans 5 tells us that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. While we were still His enemies, Christ gave His life for us. He did it. We didn't do it. We, like Gomer, like Israel, are the unfaithful objects of God's love. Jesus is the fulfillment of Hosea's love. He is the embodiment of it. God's love in Christ is showered on us in abundance despite our blatant unfaithfulness, which He cannot condone. The price must be paid. And who paid the price for my sin? Who paid the price for your sin? Who paid the price? Whose sins were nailed on the cross of Christ? Yours? Mine? The sins of the nation Israel? God did it. By His predetermined plan before the foundation of the world to love His people because He willed to love His people for His own glory. Have you seen the adultery of your own heart? Is there a sin or sins that you hold more dear than Christ? Be revolted by your self-righteousness. Turn from it. God invites us to do so. Come to the foot of the cross every day. Every hour. When those sinful thoughts creep into your mind. When you're contemplating or you're tempted to take that action or say that word or throw that look. Take that to Christ. To the foot of the cross. Because He loves us. He cares for us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be there. Jesus is the atonement for us. He is the covering for our sin. As we partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, one of the things that is talked about in the Scripture is that we are called to examine ourselves, to examine our hearts. 
We do this not because we are uncertain of God's grace or because we are uncertain of His love. No, His love is steadfast. It never ceases. It never comes to an end. But we examine ourselves because of our own hearts. Influenced by the flesh, the world, and Satan, we tend to forget the glories of the cross. And so we hear as unfaithful objects of His everlasting love for us, should examine ourselves. And then celebrate. Celebrate for the remembrance of the great work Christ did for us in bringing us salvation and the great destiny we have in His kingdom, in glory with Him. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you this morning and express our own self-righteousness and confess it before you. For, Lord, we so easily see the sins in others. And we so easily are blind to our own sin. Lord, keep us from having thoughts that make us think that we are entitled to your love. We are entitled to your blessings. Because we are not. We are sinners. We are at times unfaithful to you. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been faithful to us and made us the objects of your love. Not because of anything we have done, for what we have done deserves judgment. But because of your great grace and your great salvation, we can stand firm before you in the shadow of the cross and the sacrifice of our great Savior, Jesus. Oh, Father, help us to see how much you love us. Through your Spirit, empower us to love you in return, Father. Teach us the message of Homer, or rather of Hosea and Gomer, even this morning. Give us a great understanding, Father, of how in Jesus Christ you have provided righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness to people who are unworthy of your love. Amen.